Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. It has been eight years since Chris first started talking about a fix to that daily choke point on I-5 between Everett and Marysville. And finally, work is set to begin on a major improvement project this week. Yeah, I got super excited eight years ago when I heard this project was in the works. I didn't know it was going to take eight years to get here. But North End drivers know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the daily backup from the Boeing Freeway in Everett up through Marysville. But as Colleen will attest, being a person from Marysville, oh. it's not just a weekday commuting no. thing. It can happen on weekends. It can happen on you know the middle of the night. No, no, apparent reason. Reason, no apparent reason. Yeah, yeah. and so what does this really is it's a function of the current freeway design because you have on and off ramps to downtown Everett. Right after that, you have the on and off ramps from Highway 2. Then you have the exits to Marine View Drive, all within about a mile of each other. So it's all that weaving and lane changing. And the HOV lane just disappears. Just stops. Yeah, it just stops there. So everybody moves over because they want to get in the quote-unquote fast lane. Exactly. Yeah. And, so, and that just bogs down the freeway. And then, of course, you have a similar issue the further you get up towards Marysville with all the lane changing there. And it's hazardous, too, because, you you know, you're going along at 60 miles an hour and all of a sudden the traffic's backed up because they're, everyone's either trying to merge onto 5 or off of 5 onto 528. Um, it's really been a trouble spot for a long time. The Washington Department of Transportation's Kurt Batdorf says the work is beginning next week to add a northbound HOV lane between Marine View Drive, where Colleen just mentioned it ends, and to just up south of Marysville. The problem is that there's just too many people, too many drivers too many vehicles using the, the available lanes. It just creates a lot of bottlenecks through that whole five-mile stretch, and we think that this HOV lane will help get that traffic moving through the area a lot more efficiently. And while I'm kind of stoked about the HOV lane, what I'm really excited about is this project includes a new I-5 off-ramp to 529, which gives drivers another option to get into Marysville. Why is that important? Why is Colleen shaking her <laughs> fist in the air as, my goodness, why are you finally fixing this? Because the main Marysville exit to 4th Street gets routinely backed up by freight trains. Yeah. That crossing on 4th Street before State Avenue gets backed up several times a day. So this gives you an opportunity to get into Marysville without having to go across the railroad tracks. Yeah, there's nothing more frustrating than get trying to get off the freeway and realize there's a freight train a block away from you that you're like stuck. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you. I mean, you know, you know what this is like. Oh, yeah. You, you can't get into or out of the city without having to run into a train. It's it's the worst design for a city. Yeah, so this <laughs> new 529, it's a, not, a kind of a mini interchange. It's basically an off-ramp. That'll allow you to get off just south of the water there, the little the slough there, and then get in on the backside of Albertson, so you won't have to pass everything there. There's also going to be a new ramp to south uh, southbound 5 from southbound 529 as well, so that should really help. Batdoor says the engineers are squeezing the new HOV lane into the current freeway footprint. To do that, they have to repave the northbound shoulder, move the lanes. The new lanes, by the way, in the area are going to be a foot thinner than they currently are from 12 feet to 11 feet. We're going to repave the shoulders to cover over the the rumble strips that are there now. The lanes will shift over to the right, and this will all be northbound initially for next week. So the lanes, once that paving's done, the lanes will be remarked and shift over to the right. They're staying within the current footprint because widening the road would have required expanding several bridges over the sloughs that go up there between Marysville, and that would have cost a lot of money. Now, this will add a northbound HOV lane only. I asked Batdorf, why not do the same thing in the southbound direction? Even though there's more traffic on the southbound lanes 
there there isn't the amount of merging that goes on that we have with the northbound traffic between US 2 and 529 and 528. At this point, we don't have any plans for a southbound HOV lane. There will be a lane shift on southbound I-5 through that construction zone, but that's just to create a work zone in the middle of the freeway. That'll happen a little bit later on this month. Drivers should expect nighttime work, weekend work, lane closures throughout this project, which is set to take two construction seasons. That means by fall of 2024, we should be good to go. You know, we're trying to be good stewards of the taxpayers' money. We know that we want to get this problem solved, and this is really the most efficient way that we can manage to do it. The project should really improve conditions there between Everett and Marysville. Not sure how much it's really going to help I-5 right there at Highway 2 and in the downtown Everett exits because you're not really getting rid of all the weaving and merging there, but there will be a little bit more room and capacity further to the north of that, so hopefully that will will make things a little bit better. And when is Everett going to get its light rail? Uh, somewhere in the late 2040s. Oh. 2040s? Yeah, wow. to Everett, all well, the way to Everett. Oh. What about fixing the train crossing there? Well, it's at grade. It's right there. I mean, that would take... Dig under it. That would take an act of... Oh, a tunnel. A train tunnel. The problem is the water table right there and, I mean, what they've done with all the sloughs that have go through there, plus the tidal conditions that they have, I'm not sure that's the the best spot to be digging, kind of like we talked about yesterday with potentially lending 99 through South Park. What about elevating it, like Spokane, through the city of Spokane, so it doesn't clog up traffic, the train is elevated. Well, if you think about it, there's the, the train bridge there that goes over the last slough and then where it goes i mean where are you gonna just in order to create the footprint for something that would elevate a train track like that you'd have to get rid of all the businesses right there because that would take a pretty large footprint so mm-hmm. on either side of that of where the tracks are oh, i think you'd have to lose a shop there too you don't want to get rid the of the village that. used to be there the village isn't too far yeah, away from well, how, how about just moving the city of marysville then <laughs> what four it miles to the east it wouldn't be marysville if you didn't uh, get yeah. stuck behind a train i, I suppose so. yeah, yeah so it's i mean this is yeah what this is one quickly this is one of the things i first realized when i took over the the traffic department once trains and the coast guard are involved in your commute mm. and you're not on a train or on a boat i knew we were in trouble yeah <laughs> we're in trouble this is seattle's morning news dave ross with colleen o'brien let's go to cairo news radio's matt markovich the legislative session is now at the halfway point so uh, what has survived How about that you know <laughs> yeah. that's a big deal 105 days we're yeah. at day uh, 53 now, so that's basically halfway. Well, yeah, that's what I thought we would talk about today, about the big stuff, as well as a lot of the bills that we've been covering in this segment for the last 53 days. So let's talk about the big stuff first. Yeah. Police pursuits. That's still very much alive, modified to some extent. It's waiting a vote in the House. And then you have the Blake decision. That's the possession of illegal drugs, personal amounts of that. That is alive. And that is very much in play in terms of what they're going to have is mandatory treatment Mm -hmm. with some sort of big stick like a gross misdemeanor if you don't go through mandatory treatment. It seems like that's going to be the way. There's a couple proposals out there, but there's going to be – it appears that there's going to be some sort of remedy to that this year. So there would be a penalty for being caught with a certain amount of drugs. Yes. every The bills that are going through and making uh, all have some sort of element, it's whether it's a gross misdemeanor, whether mm-hmm. it's, which would be a year in jail or a misdemeanor fine or mandatory treatment from 12 to 18 months or, or a limited amount of that. So there's always there's going to be a component of treatment with the stick of uh, jail time if you don't do your treatment. 
So when it comes to the uh, the Blake decision, when it comes to drug possession, Republicans were pushing to go back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. So have the Democrats uh, made any compromises in that direction? I think it's the penalty part mm-hmm. because you still have some senators like Monker Dingra just basically saying we should just legalize personal amounts. And there is no uh, penalty if you have more than a personal amount or anything mm-hmm. like that. So I think that the compromise with the Democrats is we're going to have some sort of stick if they don't do the treatment. You are going to do jail time, not prison time like it was, which was a felony. But this is county jail time if you don't follow through and repeatedly county jail time if mm-hmm. you still don't go to treatment. So, so that's for people who are pursuing this more liberal approach, you know, just live and let live, let them let them use drugs. Have they been convinced that that really doesn't help the user to just enable them to you know use as much of these these dangerous drugs as they want no i think the real push is the treatment mm-hmm. i mean that 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 we're going to let you have it and if you're caught with large amounts and and you may be doing something else this will be part of the possession argument that you have to get treatment Although the big factor here, the huge factor here is there's no price tag on all this treatment yeah. that's going to be required. There's nothing like that. Oh, I see. So there still is no program set up to actually follow through on the treatment idea. That's correct. That's <laughs> correct. I mean, wow. we, we, they're, they're already talking. There's shortages of behavioral treatment, shortages of uh, drug treatment. And with this mandates uh, that has to go to treatment and the cities and counties who would be in charged with paying for this treatment are saying to the state, OK, you have this. Where's the money going to come from? We don't have the money to do this. Yeah. Another unfunded mandate. Let's talk about the uh, the governor's $4 billion housing levy. Where's that? Right now, it's just sitting in the wings, waiting for the capital budget talks, which usually happens in the later in the session. And he has, as you know, he has talked about now an alternative of waiting. Maybe there might be enough tax revenue to pay for it rather than going to the vote of the people. Mm-hmm. That was the news that uh, he talked to you about. So we're waiting to see what's going to happen right there. But that's going to be very late in the session. We talked a lot about the gun bills. Yes. Yeah. Once again, assault weapons, dead. The idea that Mayor Harrell wanted, he wanted to have local control of guns, that's died. So nothing changes on guns then? Pretty much. Uh, the idea about having a safety class, that's dead. You know, almost all the gun bills that mm-hmm. we've been talking about are all dead. Uh, prohibiting open carry in certain weapons in public parks, that's died. You know, so pretty much every gun bill that we've been talking about for the last 50 days is dead. But we still have ERPOs, right? So Correct. If you if you suspect somebody of not being of a sound mental condition to possess a gun, you can... At least seek an order to have him disarmed, right? Correct. Yes, okay. yes. And that's that's very much in effect. And actually, they're trying to push that more. Uh, judges are starting to use that more. We, we've we talked about the free school lunches. That is still much alive. That's passed. Really? So yes. that all school lunches would be free for everybody? No, they've modified that now. Oh. They, they, the bill that passed and is waiting a vote on the House floor has modified that you do have some income limits now, almost like mm-hmm. what we have now. So that idea of a universal free lunches for okay. every kid. So that's died. That's that. But idea there will still died. be some kids who get the, the kids who can't afford it will get a free lunch. Correct. Though. Correct. Well, that makes and, sense. And breakfast and breakfast. Um, but it's, again, it's a big issue of reimbursement. That's what's holding everything up. Is and again, it's got to be money tied to all this, and there's no money right now tied to it. So that's what's going to be hammered out later on in these capital and operating budgets. 
Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. One of the victims in the University of Moscow murders last November grew up in Skagit County, Ethan Chapin. His former employer now wants to honor him. And you can help. Cairo News Radio's Lisa Brooks tells us more about Tulip Valley Farms' plan. A former co-worker of Ethan's came up with the idea to remember the University of Idaho student through tulips. So they're creating a special mix of yellow and white tulip bulbs called Ethan's Smile. CEO Andrew Miller tells the Bellingham Herald, Chapin was always smiling, thus the name. And the flowers are a way to bring some light and joy into an otherwise very difficult time. Also, the farm will be selling Ethan's Smile stickers and clothing with the proceeds going to Chapin's family and to building community gardens as a way to remember him. Lisa Brooks, Cairo News Radio. You'll be able to see Ethan's smile tulips and buy the bulbs at Tulip Valley Farms starting in April. 747 and now from the G and Ursula show, which starts at 9 o'clock here on Cairo News Radio. Here's G Scott. Boy, you, you drilled deep into the problems of the Seattle area yesterday. You had the mayor on. Had the mayor on. You had the county prosecutor on. And, yeah. City attorney on. Yeah, yeah. So I listened to all that stuff. What conclusion did you come to after hearing uh, all the reasons why nothing can be immediately done to uh, clean up the streets? Yeah. Um, My takeaway yesterday was uh, that the three people that we did interview yesterday passionately care about Seattle. And let's start off with the mayor, Bruce Harrell. First of all, even if Mayor Bruce Harrell stood in front of the podium and said nothing for his entire term, it's still better than the back-to-back mayors that the city of Seattle had. (laughs) Mayor Ed Murray Mm -hmm. and Jenny Durkin, right? So that's number one. Number two, I think he is doing a phenomenal job in just his passion. And sometimes, even if you just care, because people don't care. I, I have this on my email. I don't know who said it, but people don't care how much you know until they find out how much you care. And that is what Mayor Bruce Harrell is doing for the city. Are things perfect? Absolutely not. And he admits that on the show. And he's talking about the things that we talked about, you know, the police department, which is a problem all over the country with retention and with recruiting. We talked about what's going on downtown. Does it need to get better? Absolutely. Has it gotten better since he's gotten in office? Yes, it has. We talked about people uh, coming back to work downtown Seattle. This is something that is going on all across the country. He says the city's got 70 percent of its employees back now, right? He said, yes, he sent his staff, the city staff, he has has 70%. And, and there was an implication, mm-hmm. you're hinting at something, that other municipalities are not doing as well right, at getting right. there. Can you uh, elaborate on that, or are we not supposed to say? Well, well, he he, he didn't say. He said, oh, okay. no, I am not talking about anybody oh, so I else. I Ursula talking. Yeah, I can, he said, I can okay. only talk about our staff. Okay. And let's be real, the mayor of Seattle can't control... And tell private organization companies 
what to do with their employees. You can't tell them. They can't come to uh, Cairo Radio and say, hey, Cairo Radio, these are the people that need to come back and do their job here on the air. Well, Cairo Radio did that for them. But I can see the conflict, though, because while the downtown Seattle businesses need these employees to come back, the employees are saying, I don't want to drive in traffic. I don't want my lifestyle back. That stress of coming back into the office. Yeah, you got to get that push and pull right yeah. there. Now, another thing that uh, Mayor Bruce Harrell said yesterday, and I, and I love when he admitted that. He said, hey, downtown will not be the same as it once was. And I think we all know that, right? It's never going to go back to 100% what it was. No, no, no employer is going to go back probably to the 100% where people are coming in five days a week. I think it's fair to say those days are are over. We've learned from the pandemic there are people that are vested into their jobs, like Colleen just said, that are telling their employers, eh, I'm not coming back to work five days a week. And right now, lately, that's been a competition as far as uh, picking employers like they're saying, uh, hey, you want to come here? You want a recruiting tool? You want to come work for us? You can work from home. You just come mm-hmm. to the office one day a week. Become a benefit. So, oh, yeah. And as far as Lisa Mannion and Ann Davison, uh, my takeaway from those two is it's really cool to see the two of them come together and try to get to the bottom of the problems that we have currently. And one of the biggest problems right now, and their op-ed was about, their op-ed was about what's happening. What's happening with the mental health aspect of things, the fact that we have lack of beds, you don't really have Western uh, Western state, you don't have that going on. And so when you don't have that, you have a lot of these uh, folks in limbo waiting to uh, either, they're waiting in jail, and they're getting that $250 a day that kind of accumulates, or they're being released out into the public, which isn't good either. Well, they called out the state. They, they called out the state. They just said, state, do your job. Now, I'm, well, they weren't specific on who at the state's been doing their job, but it sounded like nothing really gets off the ground in terms of getting people who are in mental crisis off the streets unless DHS, DSHS has the beds to treat those people. Right. And so we now we want to talk to DSHS about this topic. So, again, the two of them coming together to say, hey, we have a problem. And one of the problems that we talked about as well, they have over 400 health professionals that are waiting to get approved to be able to go out there and help with this mental health crisis that we have. How do we talk about mental health all the time? But we have a backlog of 400 people in the state that are waiting to get approved. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I could I could tell you were you were frustrated when that came up. I was a little frustrated. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it, it, it was it was good. I, re, I really loved having them on the show. And, and and again, I want to repeat. I think the takeaway is this: sure, ain't nobody perfect. But the takeaway is is you can tell that there is passion and that they care, and you can tell that on their watch there is not going to be a East Precinct that, that gets vacated, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Those things won't happen. Yeah. You can tell that no text, summer of love text messages won't be erased. Mm. And <laughs> well, we can't promise that. We got to keep our eye on the government. All right, they can they can charm you, but you have to keep an eye on them. And I know you will on the GN Ursula show. You ask great questions. I mean, I, I hope you don't erase text messages. Yeah, don't do it. I hope Bruce. you learn that. Yeah. He knows. He She's knows. got nice. 9 o'clock with Ursula this afternoon in Cairo News Radio. This is Seattle's Morning News. 
Climate change is here, and we're seeing the effects already. Jake Biddle has written a book called The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and the Next American Migration. He's a writer for Grist Magazine. You you sort of um, use the Florida Keys as the evidence that uh, climate change is here to stay and that the Florida Keys actually are not here to stay. So start us off with the situation down there. How bad has it gotten? Right. So it's pretty bad. I mean, after uh, Hurricane Irma in 2017, hundreds of people, perhaps thousands, lost their homes uh, in that storm. And and many of them never made it back uh, because home prices rose by quite a bit and the recovery took quite a long time. And so many people said, this is enough. I want to leave. Uh, And the federal government has sort of pushed some money, starting a program that might sort of buy people out, help them move. But I think since the storm, what would normally have been a, a normal recovery has been kind of jeopardized by the fact that sea level rise has also increased in pace quite a bit there. So even as the Keys are recovering from this really devastating hurricane, many neighborhoods are also seeing sort of frequent tidal flooding for sometimes 20 or 30 days every fall. You know, their roads will be completely inundated. So they're sort of getting it uh, from both sides. They're fighting a war on two fronts and trying to clear away debris, rebuild homes, and then also trying to find a way to adapt their roads and streets and houses to a sort of more persistent a threat of flooding. Now, is that an outlier or are coastal cities like Seattle facing a similar fate? So I think that the Keys and the, the Gulf of Mexico in general, sea level rise seems to be happening quite a bit faster there. And in general, the, uh, the landscape is such that there's been so much construction right on the water that there's a lot more vulnerability there. But I think, as you can see in California and other parts of the Pacific Northwest, the coastal erosion is a factor on the West Coast as well. Although I think the, the volume of real estate and the potential jeopardy is, is quite a bit bigger on the East Coast. What was the psychology? Seattle, that is. Sure. What was the psychology of those living in the Florida Keys prior to these historic hurricanes? And, and did the hurricanes change their mind about climate change? Yeah, so it's funny. I mean, I'm, I'm from Florida originally, and people from Florida pride themselves on being quite resilient to hurricanes. You know, people really don't like to evacuate. They really like to hunker down. And that's especially true in the Keys. You know, part of the the charm of the place is that it's quite remote, it's quite vulnerable, and people like that. There were many people, though, who after the storm, after seeing kind of what it did to the, the hardest hit parts of the Keys, they just said, I've really, really had enough. I either can't afford to come back, you know, I don't have insurance, so I can't rebuild my home, or perhaps the, the state is not letting me rebuild my home because they're saying it's too vulnerable. Either that or they said, I just don't want to do this again. It's it's too scary. And so they, they want to stay in Florida, but maybe not quite so close to the water. So, yeah, I think it did have an impact on a lot of people. Although, of course, there's always people who will say, I don't want to leave. I don't want to live anywhere else. Do they believe in climate change, though? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a mixed bag, especially in the Keys. You know, some people really don't think that climate change has, has an effect on hurricanes and uh, they don't see their relationship there. But I think that... As the pace of sea level rise has gotten worse and as there's been so much flooding, routine flooding, what they call nuisance flooding in places that hadn't seen it before, I think a lot of people are starting to say, well, this is not normal. We've lived here for decades and, and this has never happened before. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely a mix of beliefs down there and, and, and in most places. And where are they migrating to? You, you said many stayed in Florida. Yeah, that's a good question. People tend to want to migrate 
relatively short distances. A lot of people left the Keys and they moved to Orlando, which is, you know, inland in Florida. It's not quite as vulnerable to hurricanes because it's not on the coast. You don't get the storm surge. But then some said, you know, I really, <laughs> I need somewhere more temperate. You know, Asheville, North Carolina was a hotspot for migration out of the Keys. I spoke to several people who ended up there. If it's more temperate, there's virtually no threat of flooding, certainly not from hurricanes. And there's, it sort of seemed really appealing to people. You know, a lot of people retire down in the Keys and they wanted somewhere that's also remote, also peaceful, but, you know, did not have that vulnerability. Is this translating into more support for measures that are designed to stop climate change? Or are people just saying it's happening anyway, nothing we can do about it. I just have to move. I don't think it's translated into more support for measures that would change the way that we get our energy, right? Like measures for increasing solar power or stopping, you know, the combustion of fossil fuels. But I do think that what you see in the aftermath of these events is that there's a lot of support for government spending uh, to help make these places more resilient to disasters, right? So the federal government, you know, they all have programs to build flood walls. They can change beaches around so that they're you know, can absorb flooding. There's all kinds of things that they can do. You know, you can retrofit houses to make them less vulnerable to fire. And in general, people really do support these measures. You know, they sort of enjoy bipartisan consensus to the extent that the government does fund those measures. They prove to be pretty popular. So because I think it's not necessary for people to talk about them through the lens of climate change, you know, they just want to protect the places that they live. But on the other side, you know, the, the mitigation side of getting off fossil fuels. I don't think that these disasters really change people's minds on that that much. Yeah. The um, mitigation measures, they're okay with the government paying for that, considering that, I mean... (laughs) Well, yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's a good question. A, A lot of places, you know, even wealthy jurisdictions... It's extremely expensive to yeah. do the kind of stuff that's necessary to make these places resilient to climate change. And really, the federal government, whether it's through a cost sharing agreement or, you know, direct funding, is kind of the only game in town, so to speak, that has enough money to make the changes that are necessary. So, yeah, I mean, I think you can see this, actually, like it even happened with uh, some provisions of the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Republican elected officials will say, well, this is great. You know, this bill brought some, some, you know, money back to my district. You know, we're going to be able to fix up these roads. And the same is true for these sort of climate resilience measures. But they don't vote for it, of course. But everyone in their district usually does support this kind of stuff because there's really no downside for the most part. It just makes everyone safer. In your research and your estimation, what's next for areas like Florida in the Florida Keys? Uh, you know, how much bigger can these hurricanes get? Or I guess when do the Keys disappear? It really does depend. It's hard to measure. Hurricanes, it seems like they're going to continue to be sort of at this threshold of category five, 150 to 170 mile per hour winds. And they're going to maintain strength up until the moment of landfall because the Gulf of Mexico gets so hot in the summer now that the hurricanes can get quite strong over a period of 72 hours, leaving very little time uh, for people to prepare. This has happened in the last three years successively in Florida and Louisiana. But I think that the other main development that will happen in places like Florida is it will get so expensive for people to continue to insure their homes because the vulnerability to to wind and flood damage is so extensive that insurance companies really don't want to offer coverage anymore. Jake Biddle's book is titled The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. Jake, thank you. Hey, thank you so much. 848 Seattle's Morning News. And Mickey Gomez is here to 
introduce us to a, a huge new development in the toy world. There are two new American Girl dolls, and uh, the, each of these dolls, of course, has a story. And these two new ones are basically based in Seattle and are from the 1990s. So these are, uh, these are sort of throwback dolls. And the question comes up, well, the question in the room here was, does anybody remember the 1990s? Of I course, remember, of course, absolutely. I remember them very well. It was my childhood. It was mm-hmm. the Bill Clinton years for Good me. T- <laughs> the baby boomer finally got into the White House and fixed right. everything. And so. he messed it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so who are these new characters, and do you find them appealing? I, I think well, they look like Clueless when I, when I look at them. They look like the like the movie Clueless. Absolutely, and looks um, like Ty and Cher. Yeah, and, no, yeah, Ty and Cher. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you could kind of look at them right now and think that they are dressed in today's times because all of that fashion is coming back. It is, and I love it. Yeah, especially the uh, what is it called the. Um, the, the denim and the, uh, oh my God, my the flannel. The flannel. Thank yeah, right? you. I couldn't think about that. Yeah. I haven't had my coffee yet. Okay. My mind is still focused on the, the on the bale of hay that's on fire. But anyway, yes. uh, so how do we explain the 1990s to our teens, you know? And, um, and is it, oh, it's like, they're kind of jumping the gun, bringing 90s dolls and calling them historical dolls. I'm like, are you kidding me? That was barely 20 years ago. In the 70s. Yeah, do, do the, the 80s yeah. or maybe even the 80s. They because do have an 80s things. doll oh, already. It's Courtney. One? Okay. Yeah. All right. So, you know, I showed the dolls to my kids yesterday and I'm like, do you notice anything different? They were like, no, it's just dolls. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I guess they uh, they missed the mark on that one. Even the names. Their names are Isabel and Nikki. Nikki and Isabel. Yeah. Weren't, aren't those 2000 names, though? I mean, because the popular 90s names are Jessica and Ashley. Oh. Those are the mm-hmm. those are the top names from the nineties. Yeah, that like, sh- it should have been that. Yeah, no, absolutely. they did get something right, like what personal pan pizzas from Pizza Hut. I remember that Pizza Hut was like at its height in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I feel, and one of them, I think Nikki, is based in Seattle, and she enjoys her ninety. Of course, it's the mecca of nineties music, and mm-hmm. we just had nineties uh, music playing up there. Coffee shops, technology. Mm-hmm. She has a skateboard. So yes, this was totally <laughs> skater era. My sister, who's six years older than me, she was the skater, and I was a little bit more of like the Spice Girls, Body Glitter, Cucumber yeah. Melon, Bed Bath mm-hmm. & Beyond Spray. Body Glitter? Body yeah, glitter. don't you remember the Body Glitter? Or Babe. You remember Babe? I do. I loved Babe. Yeah. I used to go to the grocery store and buy I'm like, Mom, don't forget the Babe. Roll-on Body babe. Glitter was yes. all the rage the for movies? girls. No, I what? mean the roll-on um, deodorant for girls, for mm-hmm. teens. Very popular in the babe. 90s. Chris, did you ever use Babe? I have no idea what no. the I was working the night shift at Kyra or no, at KXL in Portland already. I'm an I'm an eighties baby. So I'm yeah, an eighties baby. Your doll would be the Courtney doll then. No, I'd be the cabbage patch. I'd be the cabbage patch kid is what I, I would be. Cabbage patch kid. I had a cabbage patch too. Her I name love was that. Violetta. So I feel like the nineties too was the height of the Pepsi versus Coke wars. So absolutely. maybe Nikki and Isabella should have a can of each. I just remember playing all day outside and only coming in for dinner. I don't feel like that happens anymore, really. That was the a big 80s were a thing, great too. Time. So, of course it was. Right. So when we talk about the 90s in our household, my kids always mention it by saying, hey, mom, let's watch a 1900s movie. Oh. And I'm like, OK, all right, let's do that. So we, we have like our list. We've, we've written down a list of movies from the 1990s and we've already watched most of them. Silence of the Lambs, which won an Oscar. Whoa. You um, watched that with your kids? Nice. I did. My kids and I love scary movies. Oh, yes. It puts the lotion in the 
Yes. But, oh, my son loves to say that. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, we watched You've Got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, those are two of my favorites. Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Yes. Um, we've also shown our children uh, encyclopedias. We've gone to the library mm-hmm. to study. And Encyclopedia I, I Britannica. Said, I said we didn't have Google back then, so I couldn't look up answers. We had to actually go into the library. So I thought maybe one of the girls should have had a library card. Yeah, well, they do, do they, have a do big they? old computer. Okay. I mean, yeah. they do get that right. What about Clueless? Did you put that one on your list? I did not. Have they not watched Clueless? No, my, da- my kids have watched okay. Clueless. No, right. they have. I just right. didn't watch it with them. And then we, uh, we have an old Motorola cell phone. Nice. That uh, that um, still that works? we showed our kids. I I don't know. I'm sure we could charge it though because we still have the How charger. How old is your Motorola? Is it the old it Motorola cell came... phone that's the size of a brick, or is it like the flip phone? It's the flip Motorola ah, phone, and that's... I remember buying that one actually in Austin, um, right across the street from Motorola headquarters, and uh, and you know. Um, not only that, but my wife found an old pager of hers. And we had to show our kids what a pager was because they had no idea. Um, so Were the 90s the last good free decade? That's what they call it. That's what they're saying. Yeah, I, you know? I feel like everything changed after 2001. Hmm. Well, it was possibly. that Y2K, remember? Oh, yeah. yeah, which turned out to be a big nothing. A big nothing burger, right? right. So um, we also talk about 90s fashion, like uh, overalls, which are making a comeback. Yeah. Plaid and skirts, I see them all over the mall. What do these things cost, by the way? These um, A couple hundred. Yeah, they're really? expensive. Yeah, they're very expensive. And then you have to buy the accessories. Oh, of course. But they're very quality, I have to say. I have the Molly doll. Of course, as a 90s baby, I uh, had an American Girl doll, and I, I did the Molly one, and they're all very quality. Mm. That's why they're expensive. Do they talk? No. No. See, my day, no. we had Chatty Cathy. We had, <laughs> our dolls could talk. Oh, yeah. and pee their little diapers, too. Yes, I remember that those too. as That's well. Right. Baby I got Alive. A, I, I got a Build-A-Bear for my birthday. Cute. Mm. Isn't that cute? I like it. Instead of an, I'm glad my kids didn't get, I mean, they wanted to get me a doll. And they were like, what kind of doll do you want? I'm like, for nostalgia's sake? And they're like, yeah, let's get you a doll. And I'm like, ah, don't give me an American Girl doll. Well, <laughs> I, welcome Isabel and Nikki Hoffman to the American Girl. Do they come with birth certificates? I would hope they so. Do. Cabbage yeah. Yeah. Do? Okay. Kids, so. My childhood, now historical. And Boy. passports, I'm sure. They just use the enhanced driver's license now. And the enhanced driver's license. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, body suits. Our texters are are popping off on 90s fashion, too. I love it. What are they saying? Body suits. Oh, that's right. They're back. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.